EM Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Quick, let's get on with it. This is the 30 EM Cases Quick Hits podcast dedicated to COVID-19 practical tips, updates, and experiences from your colleagues. This time around, we have Swami on oxygenation, a rapidly evolving paradigm in COVID-19. We have Andrew Petrosoniak giving us some tips on how to modify trauma care in the COVID era. We have Michelle Clayman touching on some addiction stuff. Britt Long on behalf of EM Docs with Michael Gottlieb. They're going to cover cardiovascular aspects of COVID-19, particularly the complications we have to look out for. And Lior Summer, who you've heard before on our ENT, UTI myths, and pneumonia episodes, he's going to touch on the importance of bringing the human element into our care for COVID patients. All right. First up, we've got Swami on his experience in New York City when it comes to oxygenation strategies. There have been a lot of messages on social media in all of the education, the foam that we are producing about oxygenation and COVID-19 and how we should go about oxygenating these patients. I've had some experience with this over the last couple of weeks, unfortunately, or fortunately, because I can try to share that with those of you who haven't quite felt the surge hit you and are looking for answers or solutions. And the first thing I have to say is that I don't have an answer or solution. This is all developing. And what I am saying today might change tomorrow or the day after that. And it's definitely different than what I was doing a couple of weeks prior, but I want to share some of those experiences. And the other disclaimer I want to give is that I haven't tried all of these different techniques. I've been in conversations with people like George Kovach and Rich Levitan and Scott Weingart and Chris Nixon about these things and trying to figure out what the best way is to go about doing it. And I'm going to share those experiences of mine, as well as what I've discussed with these people as well. One of the first things that I have noticed or I've been able to reflect on is the different phenotypes of patients that we're seeing. Early on, before we were really hitting the surge of patients, we were seeing a fair number of patients who looked like any other flu-like illness or any other common cold. They weren't hypoxic. They weren't markedly tachycardic. They had relatively good breath sounds, but their x-rays may still have showed multifocal pneumonia or at least some infiltrates. And most of these patients were going home. They weren't needing any supplemental oxygen at all. A little bit after that first window, that first set of patients with the common flu-like illness, we started to see two different phenotypes coming in. One were patients who were not tachycardic, they were not hypotensive, but they were markedly hypoxic. And despite that marked hypoxia, and we're talking about 75, 77, 80 for their oxygen saturations, they were comfortable appearing. They weren't tachypnic. They were speaking in full sentences. There was a disconnect between their oxygen saturation and their clinical signs and symptoms, not what we would expect to see. Some people have called these the happy hypoxics or the quiet hypoxics. These patients were comfortably hypoxic. That's what I can tell you. And and we would put these patients on nasal cannula. We would ratchet that up. If the nasal cannula went up over six liters and they were still having hypoxia, then we would add to that non-rebreather. If they were still hypoxic, we were usually going to intubation at that point. At that point in our understanding of COVID-19, we were very afraid of aerosolization of particles. So we didn't want to do things like high flow nasal cannula and CPAP. And we were very fixated on the patient's hypoxia, despite the fact that these patients weren't tachycardic, they weren't tachypnic. 
What we're learning now is that rushing to intubate those patients was probably not the right idea. What we should have done instead is put them on high-flow nasal cannula, maybe with a surgical mask on top to decrease the amount of aerosolized particles, put them on CPAP with a good tight-fitting mask, a viral filter, and the amount of aerosolization around that is probably very low. And doing those interventions may have staved off some intubations. And we're finding that now when we see these patients who are comfortably hypoxic, we put them on either CPAP or we put them on high flow nasal cannula. We're not needing to intubate those patients. So this is an opportunity that we missed a couple of weeks ago when we were seeing those patients with comfortable hypoxia. Unfortunately, intubation is not the cure that we thought it would be. We don't quite understand how to ventilate these patients appropriately, and so we're not doing them any benefit by intubating them. ARDSNET protocol, which we were embracing, may not be the best way to do this, and I'm not sure that I have a good recommendation on what is the best way to do this, but hopefully some of those gurus in airway and mechanical ventilation management are going to come up with that and share it with us in the near future. For these patients or any patients that are hypoxic, we need to have a stepwise progression of supplemental oxygen. Start with nasal cannula, move that to non-rebreather move that to high-flow nasal cannula, then to CPAP. And then if they're failing CPAP, that's when we would look to intubation. And we'll talk about how to decide whether intubation is the right step. In addition to that, we're hearing a lot about proning patients awake, and that is something that we have been doing at my institution, especially if they're on nasal cannula or a non-rebreather, but they're still having some oxygenation issues. Those are the patients that we are proning in the emergency department, or at least trying them on trials of proning in the ED. Usually I just tell the patient, roll over on your stomach and see how you feel. If you don't feel comfortable, go ahead and roll back. Or if you feel comfortable for a little while and then it becomes uncomfortable, roll back on your back. We're having difficulty doing this with CPAP and high-flow nasal cannula. Those devices are a little bit more labor-intensive. They're a little bit more bulky, and it's hard to get them proned. And of course, we're in the ED, and our nurses aren't necessarily comfortable with proning. It's not something that we do. It's a little bit more difficult to manage the patients. So in general, I am using proning on patients on nasal cannula or non-rebreather, the moderately ill COVID-19 patients who can still move around a little bit. And I'm asking them to prone themselves. I'm not physically proning them with myself or my team. I'm asking the patient just to roll over on their stomach and see if they feel comfortable. Another thing that can be done is a lot of these patients feel better sitting up. So put a chair by the bedside, let them get into that chair. And if that's a more comfortable position for them, let them stay there. That's completely fine as well. Another of the obstacles that we have run into is running out of CPAP machines, running out of high flow nasal cannula machines, not to mention running out of ventilators. And so we're having to find different ways to put these things together. There are a couple of different ways that you can MacGyver a CPAP machine. Scott Weingart has shared some of those on his site, and we'll drop a link to that. I have a setup that we've used in our institution, and a little of this is going to depend on what tools, what devices you actually have, what equipment you have, and what you can put together. You need to be comfortable with a couple of different setups. We'll drop some images in the show notes. We'll drop some links there. George Kovach is doing some amazing work, so look for his videos from AIM as to how to create these devices on your own with the equipment that you have, even if you don't have the CPAP machine itself. This is a really critical step for oxygenating our patients. And that brings us to the third phenotype. And these are the patients who look like they are in respiratory failure because they actually are in respiratory failure. These patients are extremely hypoxic. And we're talking about patients walking in with saturations of 25 and 30% with good waveforms, saturations that I didn't think were compatible with life. And yet these patients are tachycardic. They have good blood pressures. Some of them are actually able to speak but most of these patients are also extremely tachypnic. And so we are seeing lots and lots of patients with tachypnea in the 40s to 50s to 60 range, but they are markedly hypoxic in addition to that. 
For a small handful of these patients, they can be bridged away from mechanical ventilation with things like CPAP, but many of them will need to be intubated. And so the key steps for us is to properly pre-oxygenate them so that our laryngoscopy isn't going to be dangerous. That apneic period is going to give us as much time as we can get. A non-rebreather is a good place to start, but is rarely adequate, and I think CPAP is the ideal here. A BVM with a PEEP valve can also be used to pre-oxygenate these patients, as long as you can get a good seal, and Kovach talks about this as well. Instead of using that CE single-hand grip, you need to use a VE lift technique. Bagging patients with COVID-19, if you're going to do it, which it's a very tricky proposition because you can aerosolize a lot of particulate matter, but if you're going to do BVM, it has to be with two operators, one person squeezing the bag, the other person is doing the VE lift to make sure that there is a good seal. I hope you guys can use this information to guide your practice. Remember those three phenotypes, the very well-appearing, mild, flu-like illness, the patients who are the comfortably hypoxic, do not rush to intubate them, use high-flow nasal cannula with a face mask over it, use CPAP with a good seal, don't forget your viral filters, use negative pressure if you can, that is the ideal, make sure you have good PPE. And then the third phenotype, the patients who are in respiratory failure, who are almost definitely going to need an intubation, you can try out CPAP on those patients, but most of the time you're going to have to intubate, which means that the CPAP is just buying time. It's just getting that pre-ox so you can have a safer intubation. I hope everyone is staying safe during this difficult time. I want to talk briefly about trauma care during this pandemic, a topic that is probably the last thing on most of our minds as we're all hyper-focused on all those patients with respiratory illnesses. But it's important we don't lose sight of all of our other patients, including those who get injured, as we still need to continue to provide them with our usual high-quality trauma care. The good news about trauma during COVID is that with all these distancing measures, trauma volumes are decreasing substantially. Observations that align with the Italian experience and others around the world. The bad news is that those who do suffer trauma are often pretty seriously injured. So let's talk about two main themes regarding trauma during this pandemic, logistics and clinical care. Let's start with logistics. We're used to having lots of people in our recess rooms for trauma. Well, not anymore. Time to physically distance ourselves, even for our team-based approaches. The key is that we all need to re-examine how teams are organized and go with the most streamlined and minimalistic approach. This is especially important for those patients who are stable and require little in terms of active resuscitation. One way of operationalizing this is to divide your team into two separate mini-teams. An active team and then a standby team who can put on PPE when called upon. This serves a few purposes. It minimizes personnel exposure, reduces unnecessary PPE usage, and yet it doesn't ignore the possibility that more hands might be required. Another change is that I'm starting all my trauma resuscitations when possible with a brief infectious symptom screen. I get it. Even asymptomatic patients can transmit the virus, but at least I can risk stratify the patient a little bit. If that's not possible, then I just assume them to be potentially positive and take appropriate measures. I'd suggest adding this to your pre-brief, since it's not really something we've ever really been too interested in during usual trauma scenarios. Finally, Once you've risk stratified your patient, it's pretty reasonable to place a surgical mask on them given that they'll likely be transported through your ED and diagnostic imaging departments, though this practice should align with your local protocols. 
All right, now let's discuss just a few elements related to clinical care. While much of trauma care remains the same, there are certain specific considerations that warrant attention. Starting with the clinical exam, just throw out your stethoscopes. At the best of times, stethoscopes have virtually no value in trauma. When can you ever accurately hear equal breast sounds anyways, with all the noise? I think most people are just making it up. So no auscultation. This is pretty consistent with other non-trauma situations anyways. And also, minimize the use of your FAST exams for stable patients who are going to go to CT. If you're at a smaller institution or don't have easy access to CT, then by all means, this can be helpful, especially as you risk stratify your patient for transport. But if they're going to get a CT abdo and they're totally stable, there's not much value add with a FAST if there's no other clinical evidence of hemodynamic instability. And really, it just acts as a vector for virus transmission. So next time, take a pause before you reflexively place that probe immediately on the patient. If they're unstable, by all means, the FAST can be valuable, and I'm not omitting it in those cases. Now for procedures. Obviously, there's lots of talk about aerosol-generating procedures now, but there's a few that deserve specific attention in trauma, but I'm not going to discuss intubation as that's an entirely separate topic. How about chest tubes? Well, at our institution, we've deemed them potentially aerosol-generating. Whether this is truly the case, I don't think we know. I'm aware of other institutions who use only droplet contact precautions for these, and I think this is a perfect example of how the lack of evidence has created a variety of protocols. Though for me, it seems to make sense that extra precaution is used when you're in the patient's chest. The other trauma procedure that warrants attention is the ED thoracotomy. Given the potential risk to us as clinicians, this should really be used very judiciously. In fact, I'd probably advocate that there's no real role for ED thoracotomy and blunt trauma at all and it should be reserved for patients with penetrating thoracic injuries who have signs of life or an ultrasound with cardiac activity or hemopericardium. Furthermore, in patients above the age of 65 to 70 years old, it's really unlikely that it will be beneficial even under normal non-pandemic circumstances, so certainly now it probably shouldn't be done. And finally, CT imaging. If you're aren't already liberally using CT for your patients, consider it. Sure, I agree there's an argument to be made that by putting someone through the CT scanner, there's a risk of contamination. But nothing about COVID is perfect, and there's always a risk-benefit. For places that have two or more CT scanners, you may consider designating one for high-risk patients and another for low-risk patients. The upside of CT scanning pretty liberally is that if we can rule out significant injuries with greater certainty, And if everything is negative, then we may actually be able to discharge the patient faster. And we all know every bed counts during COVID. So that's it. A few pearls that you can bring back to your hospital for taking care of trauma patients during COVID. Here's a quick recap. Number one, streamline your trauma teams with an active and a standby team. Two, integrate an infectious screen that's prompted using your team pre-brief. Three, throw away your stethoscope and use fast exams only when it will change your management. Four, Procedures like chest tubes might actually be aerosol generating, while the ED thoracotomy should really be restricted to penetrating chest trauma and signs of life. And five, liberal use of CT scans might help you discharge those patients that you otherwise would admit for observation. Hello, everybody, from my basement apartment in Midtown Toronto. Hope you're doing well. 
What a crazy few months it has been. Between the hundreds of emails, Zoom meetings, working in full PPE, worrying about PPE supplies, trying to keep up to date with the latest ER COVID protocols, getting a little sniffle, getting swabbed, waiting for the COVID result, which thankfully was negative, figuring out the safest way to get groceries and homeschooling three kids under seven. My brain is working on overdrive. I'm sure yours is too, and this sounds all too familiar. What are you doing to keep yourself leveled? I'm trying to keep it together by making sure I go outside at least once a day, put my phone away when I'm with my kids at least for a bit, and built the home gym I never wanted. Instagram live workouts have been an absolute lightsaver, and I try to do at least one a day. As an addiction medicine and emergency medicine physician, I'm very happy to report that the stores that sell alcohol are still open most days. Yes, this is good for me when I would like to have a glass of wine with yet another home-cooked meal. But my first thought when places were starting to close was a number of patients we would see in alcohol withdrawal if their access to alcohol was suddenly cut off. At the hospital, we've made some changes in the way we provide care to patients with addictions. First, our outpatient clinic has moved down to the space next to the emergency department and is still seeing patients in person, but arranging telephone visits for follow-ups to encourage social distancing. Second, and what I'm most excited about, though, is the expanded psychiatry and addiction medicine scope program that we have developed with our colleagues. Basically, all patients who come into the ED with an addiction medicine or mental health complaint will be seen briefly by the EDMD, screened for any acute medical issues, then referred immediately to addiction or psychiatry for management. This frees up the EDMD to see the sicker patients in the COVID areas of the department. Cases that go to addiction medicine team include alcohol intoxication, alcohol withdrawal, not seizing, opiate withdrawal, opiate overdose, not requiring active bagging or naloxone infusion, which we shouldn't really be doing anyways, the bagging part at least, stimulant-induced psychosis, and so on. These are all the patients that would previously not be referred to addictions, but the hope is now they'll get comprehensive care by our specialists and cognitively offload the ED docs. It rolls out today, so I'll let you know how it goes. One reminder I want to leave you with is to screen patients for potential withdrawal if you are recommending isolation. We've had quite a few of these in our department. Patients who have a history of complex alcohol withdrawal may need to be admitted, especially if they are homeless. For patients who are housed or are going to an isolation shelter, you can consider a short prescription of benzodiazepines with or without gabapentin to manage withdrawal. The dose I usually prescribe for an outpatient detox is diazepam 10 mg QID, then taper by 10 mg a day with or without gabapentin 300 to 400 mg TID for 7 days. With regards to opiates, consider a buprenorphine induction using traditional dosing up to 12 mg on day 1, or a microdosing protocol if there is a risk of precipitated withdrawal. During COVID, there is no need for daily observed doses of Suboxone, and even the guidelines around methadone have been a bit relaxed to reduce the number of visits to pharmacies. Don't forget to give patients a naloxone kit. There has been a lot of chatter in the harm reduction community and on social media on whether or not intranasal naloxone causes aerosolized particles. While the jury is still out and the evidence is not there, I err on the side of caution and recommend intramuscular naloxone. For patients with an opioid use disorder who will be staying in your department for whatever reason who are not interested in agonist therapy with buprenorphine, consider a harm reduction approach and provide a short-acting opioid during the admission to prevent withdrawal, prevent the patient from leaving against medical advice, 
and prevent the loss of tolerance from forced abstinence. While we are all struggling in our lives to maintain balance, I try to remember that we are so privileged to be in our position as healthcare providers. We have the best chances of obtaining PPE, we have an income, we are housed. Those living with addictions, mental health, and homelessness have a much different experience. It is our job to maintain equity in the healthcare system and take care of our marginalized and vulnerable populations. With that, stay safe, everyone. And now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade would like to let you know that they are helping EDs, urgent care clinics, and other provider groups during the COVID-19 pandemic. They've been helping their existing customers set up additional call schedules and screening clinics. They're also working on setting up province-wide virtual walk-in clinics, which will go live on March 30th. And they're doing this for free during the outbreak. Metricade's giving these organizations access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work building and managing these schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with the logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule, or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Metricade really wants to help you out during this crisis. Let them give you a hand. Check out metricade.com slash emcases and get in touch with them today. The COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in over 1 million infected worldwide with thousands of deaths. While many of us have focused on pulmonary issues and hypoxemia as the cause of death, there might be something else involved, and that would be the heart. Mike Gottlieb and I are going to talk about the cardiac complications from COVID-19. What you might hear might surprise you. Mike, to understand the complications, we need to know a little bit about the pathophysiology. So let's begin with ACE2, which stands for angiotensin-converting enzyme number two. We often hear about ACE2 in the context of viral binding, and there is some evidence showing that this coronavirus has an affinity for the ACE2 receptor allowing it to enter cells. While ACE2 is commonly present in the lung and small intestine, this is also present in the heart allowing the virus access to the myocardium, which may explain some of the complications. The other consideration is the ACE2 is an enzyme that breaks down angiotensin II. So if this ACE2 enzyme is damaged or interfered with by the virus, the concentration of angiotensin II builds up in the body. Angiotensin II is a highly versatile and problematic hormone in that it can affect inotropy and chronotropy of the heart, catecholamine release and sensitivity, vasopressin and ADH secretion, and is even involved with cardiac remodeling. In fact, this is the same hormone we are trying to lower when we start heart failure patients on ACE1 inhibitors. That was a great review of the pathophysiology. With that in mind, let's discuss some risk factors. Patients with critical illness, especially those needing intubation, have a high mortality rate in the setting of COVID-19 infection, approaching 80%. One of the most severe complications is cardiogenic shock, which is thought to be one of the end-game scenarios for COVID-19, resulting in death. Studies have shown that older age and several other comorbidities, such as pulmonary disease, are associated with bad outcomes. Unfortunately, the prevalence of cardiovascular disease in COVID-19 is just unclear. One meta-analysis of over 1,500 patients found over 16% of patients with severe infection had cardiovascular disease. Patients with cardiovascular disease have close to a five-fold increase in the case fatality rate. Older age, pre-existing cardiovascular disease or diabetes, 
coagulation abnormalities, severe organ dysfunction, and immobility are all risk factors for cardiac mortality and bad outcomes in COVID-19. Mike, now that we have a better understanding of the pathophysiology and mortality risk, let's discuss some of the specific complications. Excellent. So let's start with direct myocardial injury and myocarditis. One of the first reports of myocardial injury was a study of 41 patients with COVID-19 in Wuhan, China. The authors found that 12% of their cohort had troponin elevations, and it was four times more likely to be elevated in their ICU patients. Subsequent studies have found troponin elevations in about 7-28% to of hospitalized patients, and at least one-third of ICU patients. Now, while some of the troponin elevations may be due to demand ischemia, there is evidence suggesting that certain patients also develop acute myocarditis due to direct infiltration by the virus. In fact, one study suggested that up to 7% of COVID-related deaths may be due to myocarditis. And regardless of the specific etiology, troponin elevation is also associated with worse outcomes. Studies have suggested a 5-10-fold to 10 fold higher mortality rate among COVID patients who have troponin elevations. But myocarditis can overlap with ACS. So Britt, how are you differentiating the two? One of the big issues with systemic inflammation is that this comes with a risk of atherosclerotic plaque disruption, as well as increased demand on the heart and reduced oxygen supply. If you look back at several other studies on influenza, you find about a six-fold increase in rates of acute MI within seven days after diagnosis of influenza in hospitalized patients. This risk is also present in other respiratory viral illnesses and community-acquired pneumonia. A major problem we will face is distinguishing between myocarditis and ACS, particularly in the ED setting. If possible, obtain an echo and talk over the case with the cardiologist. An echo will more likely show a focal wall motion abnormality in patients with active ACS. Now what about treatment in patients with confirmed STEMI? The American College of Cardiology states that fibrinolysis may be considered in those who are relatively stable, though they acknowledge that PCI is more commonly performed at most places. If PCI is pursued, staff should don appropriate PPE and a terminal clean is needed after the procedure. For patients with suspected COVID infection in the setting of non-STEMI, diagnostic testing prior to a catheterization is recommended. They state that in properly selected patients with confirmed COVID-19, conservative therapy may be sufficient. Patients who are hemodynamically unstable with non-STEMI should be managed like those with STEMI. Another one of the concerning complications is heart failure. Acute heart failure may be part of the initial presentation in approximately one quarter of patients, and when present, is associated with significantly increased mortality. Patients with pre-existing heart failure are at an increased risk for bad outcomes, but there are numerous cases of new onset heart failure, which may be a direct effect of the COVID infection. Consider using your ultrasound to evaluate for the presence of heart failure in more critically ill COVID patients, and make sure to be careful with fluid replacement in these patients. Something that's interesting about the presentation is that palpitations may be a presenting symptom in over 7% of patients. There has been a wide range of dysrhythmias in patients with COVID-19 infection. Sinus tachycardia is the most common, but supraventricular and ventricular dysrhythmias have also been found. One study found that dysrhythmias were present in 17% of hospitalized and up to 44% of ICU patients with COVID-19. These dysrhythmias may be due to hypoxia 
inflammatory stress, or abnormal metabolism. Also keep in mind QT prolonging agents like azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine. If you find an elevated troponin in the setting of dysrhythmia, make sure to think about MI and myocarditis. So to summarize, COVID-19 is not just a pulmonary disease. It can cause significant cardiac complications. Up to one-third of patients may have cardiac injury and a troponin elevation. And regardless of etiology, this troponin elevation is associated with worse outcomes. These patients are at increased risk of STEMIs and NSTEMIs, but don't be surprised if your cardiologist elects to follow a more conservative plan, which may include fibrinolysis with delayed cath. A significant number of patients will have existing or new-onset heart failure, and we need to be judicious with our fluids. Finally, be aware that these patients are at increased risk of dysrhythmias due to hypoxia, ischemia, and medications. Make sure to keep an eye on their QT intervals, particularly if there are medications that can increase this. This is a tough time, but it's amazing to see everyone coming together, and we're grateful to be a part of such an amazing group of providers. Thank you, Anton, for this invitation, and I really do appreciate the opportunity to discuss my experiences during this pandemic. Now, I work in three community hospitals around Toronto, and while we've seen a slow rise in the number of COVID patients coming in over the past three weeks, we are by no means yet uh, having the capacity challenges that are present in Italy, Spain, and New York City. However, in, in all my departments, I've heard and felt the tremendous anxiety that's just been simmering uh, at a low level throughout everywhere that I've been in the hospital. There's anxiety from my physician and nursing colleagues about getting sick and taking this illness home to our loved ones, the anxiety about missing work, and also that discomfort with the huge changes of practice that we've seen over this short period of time and the influx of emails and meetings surrounding all these changes. I've heard about the anxiety from our hospital ancillary staff who are petrified of getting sick, the, the housekeepers, the DI techs, the unit clerks, and the administrators, all of these pivotal team members who, without the system, would just fall apart and, and really stop functioning in any meaningful way. Do me a favor and really like thank these people when you meet them. They're, the people in my hospital are overwhelmingly doing incredible work, and we need every single person to be doing their best in these difficult circumstances. Now, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you've already heard much smarter people than me talk to you about all the medical challenges that we face in COVID-19 patients and during this pandemic. You've also heard about self-care and helping you cope with your level of anxiety and the difficulty in this situation. What I wanted to share with you was my experience of more of the human element of this pandemic. And I've already mentioned to you that our whole healthcare system and community hospital are really feeling angst and fear surrounding this illness. And this goes for our consultants too. I've watched people talk to patients from doorways and primarily do their histories from the thresholds of the rooms in order to minimize their contacts with patients. And I get it. We're stretched, we're apprehensive. We're trying to conserve every bit of PPE that we have left, but I'm really quite 
deeply concerned that our patients who are clearly suffering the same level of anxiety and apprehension that we are, or probably worse, they're really doing that alone. I know that the, all the hospitals I work at have no visitor policies, and that's really fairly normal now for all hospitals and long-term care facilities. You know, last week uh, I was talking to one of the nurses in one of our the emergency departments I work in, and she told me about a, a 55-year-old woman who she was taking care of who, who had presumed COVID-19, who was getting more hypoxic and dyspneic and tachypneic and She'd already been seen and investigated and admitted to hospital and was waiting uh, to go upstairs. And it, it became pretty clear that she was going to need some ventilatory support. And uh, unfortunately, the ICU wasn't quite ready for her yet. And so the intensivist actually came down and did a very uh, well-controlled, protected RSI and intubated the patient. And the patient was placed on a ventilator. And uh, this nurse was telling me that really the medical care was impeccable and, and was excellent. But she was quite sad because the patient didn't really get a chance to call her relatives and would really now be alone in the intensive care unit probably for a couple of weeks. I think we can do better. Now, I'll tell you the next shift I worked, it was actually at a different hospital. I, I saw... A guy in his late 60s with, again, presumed COVID-19. He was febrile. He was hypoxic. He was tachypnic. He was really working hard. He was also a little delirious from his underlying infection. And I could see that he was probably heading towards needing a ventilator. And so I took the time and called his partner of 44 years, who was, he was so happy to hear from me, even though I was giving just awful news to him. I also made sure that the patient himself had the opportunity to have another phone call with his partner before he had gotten worse and needed to be on a vent and wouldn't be able to communicate in a meaningful way. You know, some aspects of care that were second nature to us just a few months ago are really now difficult. Touching patients without fear of contaminating ourselves, involving and communicating with family who are not allowed to be present at the bedside in many circumstances. And I know it's hard and I know it's tiring, but I think we signed up for the challenge. We really do need to make an effort to make sure that our patients' humanity is preserved. Because after this pandemic is finally done, we're going to have a chance to look back. And we'll see that we've gained a lot of skills but I want to make sure that we don't leave our human touch behind. So pay attention to the small details, communicate, and really make an effort to be kind. Thanks again, and stay safe, everyone. Before we go, don't forget that EM Cases has a weekly COVID update on the website and a little bit about how we can all help the disadvantaged people out there during this COVID crisis. Now, although we have a tough job to do, we are privileged to have jobs, to be secure in our income, to have roofs over our heads, and to have food to sustain us and our families. But this COVID crisis really is a dire situation for many marginalized communities. It would be terrific for us to find a way to support local charities at this time of extreme need. So 
I've personally donated to a couple of organizations locally in Toronto, uh, the Stop Community Food Center, for example, and nationally to the Breakfast Club of Canada to feed children in need. So from all of us at EM Cases and the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, please do consider donating to your local and national organizations to help people in need during this COVID crisis. And in case you don't have any particular organizations in mind, we've done some research and we'll have a list of organizations in the show notes for this podcast and in the EM Cases newsletter. Until next time, stay safe, be strong, and know that we're all in this together.